The All Eyes Visual Hall VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Do your patients know what presbyopia is? There are people who are afraid of the press. Have you talked to your patients about multifocal contact lenses? I've heard the bifocal, but not right, multifocal. Do you need help with your multifocal strategy? Learn more at the conclusion of this episode. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacU Health with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and micromycel technology. Hello and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gell, the host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. Also, please leave comments. Great news. You can now watch our full-length documentary, Open Your Eyes, on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube movies and shows. The visual field test was first performed by Hippocrates in 150 BC. The visual field test is used by eye doctors to detect numerous systemic, neurological, and eye disease states. Visual fields detects areas of visual loss. Examples include brain tumor, stroke, glaucoma, diabetes, macular degeneration, and head trauma. Today's guests, North Carolina optometrist, Dr. James Finelli at Neuro and research neuro-ophthalmologist Dr. Alberto Gonzalez are here to explain how the once tedious visual field test has been transformed into an exciting and interesting test for patients to perform while providing valuable diagnostic medical information to the physician. Dr. Finelli lectures around the globe on a variety of topics, including injection procedures and advanced diagnostics and therapeutics. Dr. Gonzalez has completed a glaucoma research fellowship at the Hamilton Glaucoma Center, University of California, San Diego. Dr. Gonzalez is currently the Chief Executive Officer of All Eyes. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate that. Thank you, Gary. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I, I really love that the, the two of you are here. Uh, experts on a you know a, a pretty complicated uh, subject, understanding visual fields. Because when when you're in the clinic and you're examining patients as optometrist or as an ophthalmologist, and you know things are going routine for a while, and all of a sudden 
you have this visual field change on your screening visual field, it could be something that's very serious. Dr. Finelli, can you kind of explain how you feel when you kind of get that like kind of punch in the nose that, uh-oh, we have this very unusual visual field and that means it could be something, it could be something dangerous or unusual. Well, that, that's, that's a great point. And I'd, I would say I probably get punched in the nose just about every day with that because there are a myriad of ophthalmic and neurologic conditions that are going to affect vision and the visual system. And the way to hone in on that problem is by, in many cases, doing a visual field along with the rest of the ophthalmic examinations that, that we perform. But visual fields are incredibly important in localizing exactly where or within a reasonable degree of certainty where the problem lies from a structural perspective. Is that in the retina itself? Is it in the eye? Is it in the optic nerve? Is it further back? Is it around the pituitary? Then is it in the occipital pole in the back of the, uh, you know, in the back of the brain? And all of these conditions are problematic that can either threaten vision at a minimum and sometimes can be indicative of life-threatening uh, conditions. And, and it's incumbent upon us as we're seeing these patients to be able to assess, is this something that's longstanding, slow progression, for example, like glaucoma, or is this something acute where this patient needs to leave the office now and go to the emergency room and maybe heading to neurosurgery uh, this same day. So it, it, it runs a very, very wide range of, of conditions from those that are a bit more uh, safer, if you will, uh, slower growing, slower progressing to those that are life-threatening. Dr. Gonzalez, you're a neuro-ophthalmologist and a neuro-ophthalmologist is often the last stop you know, when none of the doc, other doctors know what's going on with the patient, they send it to the neuro-ophthalmologist. Tell us about that. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, is, it is funny what you say, because I, I have a professor of mine, he's a neuro-ophthalmologist, and uh, he used to say, oh, we, the neuro-ophthalmologists are the one that are allowed to say we don't know. Um, but um, jokes apart, um, I think it's the visual field tests um, as part of the psychophysics of vision are very, very important tests in the genital eye examination. Um, I always use the example because there's a tendency which is good, I'm not saying it's completely bad, but there's a tendency for relay more on objective tests. Of course, that makes sense because you have less variability. Um, but if we use the example of the autorefractor, you remember autorefractor have been available probably since, uh, it's in the seventies or probably earlier. And we are still, asking the patient, do you see better with you? Do you see better with this? And that's because vision is a, is a very complex and part of the 
complexity is the subjectivity of vision. So I believe visual fields are going to stay with us for long. And, and, th and that's the reason why lie exists. In order to change perception that patients are having about tests like visual field, they don't need to be cumbersome. They don't need to be tired. They can be fun. They can be kids. They can be games. And that's our goal. So visual field, I totally agree with Dr. Finelli. It's, it's a very, very important uh, test that we should know very well um, and, and do it more frequently than we do, actually. So the visual field tests, patients, physicians, you know, I remember the days of the goldmine visual field, tangent screen visual fields, and the, the visual field for the patients have always been very tedious. Patients complain about doing it, but Dr. Gonzalez, you were able to, I believe you're one of the developers of using virtual reality, using a headset to make the visual field almost a fun test. Can you talk a little bit about that and where the idea came to put it in a, a virtual reality test? Right. Actually, the um, using uh, virtual reality technology to, um, to accomplish, you know, psychophysical tests like visual field are very old. We're talking, there is a, uh, a patent from the 80s, actually, that um, was describing using this kind of technology. So it's not, it's not a new concept. The, we have been just lucky to live in a time where um, the virtual reality technology has evolved sufficient to be number one, accessible, um, affordable, but also well-developed, easy enough for us to be able to add all these kind of tests. Uh, yes, we uh, started um, about four years, four or five years ago, developing the first version of virtual reality. We brought it to um, the Worldside Hospital where we did the first validation and we can show later on uh, those some of the results. And um, the first initial, you know, pilot study was very good and encouraged us to continue the development until today. That is not only a visual field test, but a comprehensive platform for performing to perform eye tests. So are you a, a gamer? Uh, a secret, are you a secret, a gamer, like <laughs> you're up all night playing uh, video games? I do love video games, that's true. Okay. And, and, no, and it helped a lot, a lot, yeah. Of okay. course, I, I'm, I'm not a coding guy. Um, I was lucky to um, have friends who helped me, uh, especially uh, uh, my friend, Freddie Morgenstern, who was very, uh, very excellent software computer scientist and helped us develop in, you know, uh, and the, the platform. So reading a visual field is almost like reading an x-ray. 
you know, so getting good at reading x-ray, getting good at reading uh, visual fields. So Dr. Finelli, I want you to help us with this. Uh, maybe you want to share your screen because I know you have some images, uh, but so with the visual fields, we start off with the, the nerve, uh, the nerve fiber layer. And then we go into the optic nerve, we go into the chiasm, we go into the optic track, we go into the radiations and the visual cortex. And different defects or problems in the brain that affect these, this pathway uh, will give different visual fields and help us with our diagnosis. So let's start with the, you know, something that we probably see more, you know, with, you know, maybe a glaucoma patient. And the, and the nerve fiber layer. So if we could if we could start with some of those, I, I know you're sharing your screen right now. So why why Dr. Finelli is sharing his screen? Let me just ask uh, uh, Dr. Gonzalez. You know, for a neuroophthalmologist who this is their bread and butter, looking at visual fields, how long do you think it takes a neuroophthalmologist to get good at being able to read the visual field? And knowing where it is in, in the part of the brain, and you know, doing an MRI or or, or some kind of a scan, and being usually being pretty right that that is going to be the localization of the defect. It it, it depends on the uh, the purpose, the reason why you did the visual field. If the reason the visual field you did was for screening purposes, it usually takes few seconds to realize what the problem is uh, or a few minutes then to go into and, and make sure that you are looking at the right defect. But if you are then looking at progression, so how the visual field have changed, et cetera, then it probably takes a little bit more, a little bit longer because now you want to look into not only the gray scale, but you also wants to look into the uh, total and pallet deviation to understand whether the defect is due to general homogeneous depress of the uh, halo vision due to, let's say, refractive errors of a cataract, or if it is an actual neurologic uh, disorder. So it's, it, it doesn't take long, most of the time. And, and the better the technology, uh, the easier will be to accomplish this task. And I wouldn't be surprised if very soon um, there are actually already exist. There's some program that can detect the kind of defect that you have. I think what we are lacking is the, you know, um, the regulatory process to really adopt those kind of automatic assessment of visual field. And uh, Dr. Finelli, are you able to share your screen? Yes, I am. Let me uh, do that here. Okay. And there we go. Um, you know, to the point of, of visual fields being utilized in clinic, everything that we do from a visual field perspective is anatomically guided. Either we're dealing with a known entity, for example, glaucoma, and we do visual fields to monitor how severe the glaucoma is and whether or not we have it stabilized, or vice versa. We're picking up a visual field defect in a screening test, and we need to sort out where in the visual system 
that problem is. So it, it all boils down to anatomy. So I, I just wanted to go through a couple strategies for, for the docs that are on board listening to this to consider when they're looking at incorporating visual fields. And, and probably one of the more common indications that we have for visual field testing is in the management of our patients with glaucoma. Now, you know, it brings up the question, well, where, where is the damage occurring? We have certainly, you know, advanced structural uh, technologies, OCT technologies to help us see where that damage is occurring in, in patients with glaucoma. But it, again, it all boils down to anatomy. This is a multicolor image of a patient who I've seen for years who has advanced glaucoma. Now, this is not a true color picture, but one of the advantages to multimodal imaging is that it can highlight, for example, nerve fiber layer defects, which are hallmark characteristics of glaucoma. So this is a, a multicolor image here on the left. And then if we're using a, a green reflectance image, this kind of highlights more anterior retina. And we can see these striations and these arcuate uh, wedge defects that are very common in patients with glaucoma. So we know about glaucoma, where the damage occurs. We have ganglion cell bodies that live here in the center portion of the macula. They give rise to axons and those axons head in this arcuate fashion toward the optic nerve. Now we also have a papillomacular bundle of axons that take a straight shot from the center of the fovea over to the optic nerve and, and are primarily localized in the temporal aspect of the nerve. And we'll get to that when we talk about some of the optic neuropathies, but we can see very clearly here these wedge defects due to loss of axons. So needless to say, when we run a visual field on these individuals, of course, everything is reversed top to bottom in a visual field. Someone with these superior arcuate defects is going to have an inferior arcuate scotoma related to their glaucomatous damage. And then of course, we're gonna repeat those visual fields periodically to make sure that they hopefully remain stable. Uh, this is also another patient with advanced glaucoma. Again, a multicolor image, but if we look at the, um, yeah, at the blue reflectance image, we can see a rather large wedge defect here that involves part of the papillomacular bundle, but this is a visual field defect that we would expect to involve fixation. So this patient has a bit more advanced Glaucoma fixation is involved. We have to be exceedingly careful in stabilizing these patients. We can see inferiorly uh, these arcuate defects uh, down here as well. So this patient has a visual field defect both above and below the horizontal raffe. And I think this highlights very clearly the fact that we have this anatomic horizontal raffe here where we have visual field defects that are either above or below that horizontal raffe. And when we see visual field defects above or below, typically those visual field 
defects originate either in the retina itself or the optic nerve. And that helps us to localize some of the visual field defects that we see from a neuroophthalmic perspective. And this patient, interestingly, uh, we can see a, a, a rather small wedge defect much further away from the optic nerve where we typically see glaucomatous damage. Bottom line, when we're running a visual field, we're testing all of the plots, all of the areas within these particular images, and we'll be able to identify visual field defects that are, for example, here in this wedge defect, but not elsewhere. And that's kind of just a, a basic overview of what's happening from a glaucoma perspective. Here's the other thing that we need to keep in mind, and this is a schematic showing a, a, an arcuate bundle defect here. And when we run a visual field test, you know, there's been a, a, a significant number of, of studies looking at what type of visual field test should we be running on our early glaucoma patients? And then what about for our later, more advanced glaucoma patients? And we were taught years ago to typically run a 24-2 visual field. And one of the downsides to running a 24-2 visual field in an early glaucoma patient, we've all seen these patients. They come in, they may have high pressures, they may have an optic nerve that looks somewhat suspect, and we run a 24-2 standard white-on-white uh, -white parametric study, and the visual field comes back relatively clean. There's not a lot to hang our hat on. And that has to deal with the fact that when we're running 24-2 uh, visual fields, we're only testing a small number of target points within the central uh, macula. And in fact, about 50% of the optic nerve axons originate in this central 20 degrees of the macula. So we're really undersampling this central visual field in early glaucoma. And that's why we've moved more toward uh, perhaps utilizing 10-2 visual fields. And I think most of our OCT instruments now are, are using uh, a variation of the hood report, which somewhat gives us guidance as to what kind of test points we're going to be testing from a structural, I'm sorry, from a functional perspective, when we overlay that on top of the structural OCT. Superiorly here we, we see, or above here, we see a 24-2 test points, and we're only going to be able to hit a couple of points in this particular individual where it's going to flag as abnormal. Whereas if we're doing a 10-2 visual field, we may be picking up more points consistent with early glaucoma. So again, it's a relationship between the anatomy that we are given at birth and then the visual field testing points that are overlying that. So we can move on to um, neuro-op, if you will, but I, I, I want to kind of open that. Yeah, let me ask a couple uh, questions on this, yeah. if I can. Uh, Dr. Gonzalez, <clears throat> at one time there was a there was a 24 or a 30-1, a 30-2. And I think a lot of people don't know what dash two means or dash one means. Uh, if you could explain why they picked dash two and no longer is there a 24-1 or a 30-1 or 30-2. Right, the, um, the one and two um, protocols are related to the position of the, of the matrix. 
and, and basically, uh, at least the last I remember, the, what happened with uh, number one is that some of the locations fell over exactly the rafe that uh, Dr. Finelli was describing. Yes. And, uh, and that was a conflict because you never knew whether those points were related to um, cells responding on the superior or inferior um, uh, hemiretina. For the reason then is that they, they sort of like shifted the template in order to avoid the stimulation of the uh, vertical and horizontal lines. And that's basically the differences. For the midline. <clears throat> now, why would why 24-2 versus 30-2? 30-2 many years ago was the, the test that was done. Now more it's more common to the 24-2. And maybe we're Dr. Finelli is saying maybe we should be doing uh, I believe he's saying a 10-2. Uh, but why uh, 24-2 is, is, is now in vogue, and what, what extra advantage would you get out of a 30-2? Uh, Benelli or? or... Uh, for Dr. Gonzalez. Oh, okay. Um, it, it's all about time, basically. Um, the uh, neuroophthalmologists usually do 30-2. Uh, um, when they started using the Humphrey uh, visual field test and, and the octopus, um, the 24-2 is mostly used for glaucoma uh, specialists. It's, you can say that it's almost a standard of care for glaucoma follow-up. And, and basically what you do is you avoid those very unreliable peripheral test is not really peripheral, but peripheral test. Um, and you only, those uh, extreme point, the only one that you use are those related to the expected nasal step because we know that it's a very common uh, pattern of defect in patients or early pattern of defects in patients with glaucoma. So it's all about time basically, if we want to really down to simplify it. And Dr. Finelli, you uh, showed us that the 24-2 may not be good enough for early glaucoma. So, it, so this is not enough points, really. Uh, so are you saying that 10-2 would be better? Uh, I think studies seem to indicate, and, and, are, and actually a, a, a reasonably large study uh, about 18 months ago was published showing that about 50% of patients who have early glaucoma that is seen on structural change fundoscopically and on OCT do not show a visual field defect on a 24-2, but do in fact show a visual field defect on a 10-2 that matches the structural changes. And that is strictly just in the early glaucoma patients. Can you see the pointer that I have on this oh, yes. screen? Okay, and you can see that in this particular example, this test point would be normal, this test point would be normal. This one would probably be borderline. Hard to say, hard to say, but you're not gonna have a lot of points in this 24 
1-2 test point that are going to show up as being defective. Whereas if we put a concentrated number of test points in this central 10 degrees, we're going to be able to pick up more points. So I think there's a move clearly toward using a 10-2 in early glaucoma and using a 24-2 for more advanced glaucoma. Good. Okay, let's move on to some of the uh, visual field images that you were uh, speaking about. Well, I, I have not so much the visual field images, but um, I did this more from an anatomic perspective on how to approach um, the neuroophthalmic and, and, and glaucomatous uh, visual field. So I, I, I don't have visual fields per se. I have more along the strategies of what would be going through our mind in choosing a visual field or using a visual field to help localize. Okay. So if that's okay. Sure, please. All right. Then let me run through. I've got these, you know, probably the piece of the, the puzzle that um, is more challenging for most of us. I mean, we see a lot of glaucoma patients, all of us as optometrists, we see glaucoma patients day in and day out. But one of the ones that, uh, or one of the conditions that um, tends to cause a little bit more anxiety, and as I alluded to earlier, can be life-threatening, are the neuroophthalmic uh, causes of vision loss. And, and that's a rather complex discussion. And to kind of keep this pretty straightforward, I think that when we look at neuroophthalmic causes for vision loss and visual field loss, it's easiest to break this down into three general areas of investigation. Those problems that are pre-chiasmal, those that are chiasmal, and those that are retrochiasmal. And I think that most of the neuroophthalmic visual field defects that we're going to see, in fact, all of them are going to fall into one of these three categories. The All Eyes Visual VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. MacuHealth, your science-born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. Do your patients know what presbyopia is? There are people who are afraid of the press. Have you talked to your patients about multifocal contact lenses? I've heard the bifocal, but not right, multifocal. Exactly. Do you need help with your multifocal strategy? Learn more at the conclusion of this episode. And probably the easiest one is pre-chiasmal visual field loss, because pre-chiasmal visual field loss is always unilateral. If we're running a visual field on an individual and they have a defect in one eye and not the other, we know anatomically that that problem is somewhere in the globe, could be the retina, it could be the optic nerve head itself, and it might be behind the globe in the optic nerve, but only up to the chiasm. Now with most neuroophthalmic conditions, there are exceptions to every rule. And this is one of those that does have an exception. 
And this, in, this involves uh, anatomy of, of certain fibers that decussate and get into the, you know, the, the posterior aspect of the contralateral optic nerve. But for the most part, in the large majority of patients, if we see a visual field defect in one eye, one side, and not the other, we know that that is something in the globe or the optic nerve itself. That's as simple as it gets. Now, it becomes a little bit more complex when we get to chiasmal visual field loss because chiasmal visual field loss is characterized by two things. Number one, it's always going to involve both the right and the left eye visual field. So it's going to be bilateral as opposed to unilateral. It may be symmetric. It may be asymmetric. Okay, but it's going to fall into one of two categories, either a bitemporal visual field defect or a binasal visual field defect. And, and this is where knowing the anatomy helps. We have to understand that the chiasm has some neighbors. And below the chiasm sits the pituitary, above the chiasm sits the third ventricle, lateral to the chiasm are the uh, 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 cavernous sinuses, and inside the cavernous sinuses are the internal carotid arteries. So if we start squashing or obliterating or affecting the medial optic chiasm, we're talking about either a pituitary problem from below or a third ventricle problem from above, whereas if we're affecting the sides, the lateral aspects of the chiasm, we're going to be either talking about cavernous sinus syndromes or perhaps carotid artery. Uh, disease. But we, and again, this, this particular diagram is something that we're all familiar with. We know that temporal fibers do not decussate at the chiasm, whereas nasal retinal fibers do in fact cross. So if we're affecting the center portion of the optic chiasm, we're going to be affecting nasal retinal fibers, which results in a bitemporal Hemianopia. Again, those bitemporal hemianopias may be symmetric. They may, may not be. Here's an interesting case of an 80-year-old patient who was complaining of visual field loss and, and having difficulty seeing out of her left eye. She also has glaucoma. So this is an older type of visual field that does show some early glaucomatous damage, but nothing from really a neurologic perspective until we did another visual field a few weeks later. And we begin to see in the left eye a distinct change here and something that almost hugs that vertical meridian. And that's one of the hallmark signs of either a chiasmal or a retrochiasmal field defect is something that is hugging a visual field defect that is hugging this vertical meridian. And ultimately, this patient, uh, we, we, we did a series of visual fields, but ultimately she was uh, found to have a, a rather large pituitary uh, adenoma that uh, was also involving the cavernous sinus on the left side. Where is her optic chiasm, you ask? It's this little white bar up here that has gotten completely smashed from below. So these visual field defects um, are very consistent with a, a pituitary adenoma. Now, postchiasmal visual field defects are also bilateral. Keep this as simple as possible. And they're going to be either right-sided or left-sided. We call those homonymous, meaning they're the same side. So it's either right 
homonymous or left homonymous, which the visual field defect, as we know, is on the opposite side of where the problem lies in the retrochiasmal anatomy. So not only can we differentiate, for example, if we have a right homonymous hemianopia, we have a problem in the left side of the brain, we can also differentiate if that is affecting more in the parietal lobe or the temporal lobe, depending upon whether that visual field defect is denser above or below. And we also use the term congruous. Congruous basically means how well those fields can lay on top of each other and be exact carbon copies. So the general rule of thumb is that those visual fields that are more congruous are closer to the occipital pole, the occipital tip, whereas those that are less congruous tend to be more uh, anterior, but still retrochiasmal. So again, without getting into to too much detail, visual information ends up in the occipital uh, lobe on both the right and left side. So whatever is ending up on the right side of the brain pertains to the left visual field and vice versa. So we're all familiar with the, the, the optic radiation. Some of those optic radiations run through the parietal lobe, some run through the temporal lobe, but they ultimately end up in the occipital cortex. And this is, this is kind of what we look at when we're seeing patients um, in, in, in clinic who have a visual field defect. I would suggest to our listeners to, to verbalize what we're seeing. We're seeing something bilateral here. So we know that this is either chiasmal or retrochiasmal. We can say that this is temporal in nature. In fact, it's bitemporal. So we know that this is a bitemporal visual field defect, which puts us right at the chiasm. And furthermore, this visual field defect is denser above than below, which means that something is impinging the chiasm from below. So in a situation like this, we're certainly going to suspect something from a pituitary perspective. Ancient visual field testing. You mentioned this earlier, Carrie, the uh, Goldman visual field testing. Visual field testing with Goldman perimetry was very good if you had a good tech, but very poor if you didn't have a good tech. So this is a, an example of a binasal visual field defect, which again is a chiasmal issue affecting both the right and left nasal hemifields. Uh, it's rather asymmetric, and this is typical of a cavernous sinus syndrome. And these are the patients that we worry about uh, as well that come in with uh, complaints. For example, often these folks will say that they have trouble seeing out of their right eye when it's in fact the right portion of the right and left visual field. So here we have a right homonymous hemianopia that is denser above than below. So we know that this is retrochiasmal. We know that the temporal lobe is involved. We know that the parietal lobe is involved. It's not exactly congruous, so this is in the occipital. Oh, but this helps us to localize where we need to direct our neuroimaging. Point being that the visual fields are very, very, very descriptive in helping us to locate where the problem is. So that was, that was a terrific overview. Uh, Dr. Gonzalez, anything you want to add to, the, to that? I think they have been an, uh, an amazing presentation. Um, I guess the only thing that I would say is uh, sometimes it could be a challenge um, detecting those uh, 
defects. Um, there's a lot of variation in terms of anatomy, like uh, Dr. Fenella said, and those variation um, are the reason why you can have uh, two complete different defects meaning the same, right? Or two same defects meaning totally different things. So it, you have to be very careful anyway when you are doing this kind of, of assessment. And so it's very, very, very interesting, very diverse. I think I remember one of the, um, when we were talking about optic neuritis, right, for example, we were talking, oh, paracentroscotoma, the classes for them. And one of the things that we learned from the optic neuritis uh, treatment trial is that the optic neuritis can give you any kind of defects. So there's no more classic optic neuritis defects at all because it can be anything, basically. And, and that's one of the greater things about the, this amazing trial. Uh, Dr. Gonzalez, you could, you could see on my screen to the left of the, the different uh, associated visual field defects. Can you see that? Yeah. We can. Can, you, can, you, can you take a look now? If you look at if so let's kind of go through that a little bit and add to what Dr. Finelli said. At the beginning ones <clears throat> are more ones that we may see with, uh, with glaucoma, but every once in a while we'll see an altitudinal defect. And as you can see, 1D and 1E. When you see something like that, what should the doctors be thinking? I guess the only uh, advice I would tell, um, um, and which is we need to be very careful, is when you are looking, especially an OCT, and not necessarily a, a, the same apply for visual field. But when you're looking to an OCT and you're looking and you're seeing a RNFL defect, um, we should not think about glaucoma always. We should think about everything because anything, the list of diseases that can give you a visual field defect glaucoma-like, it's, it's, it's actually large. It could be optoritis. It could be ischemic optoneuropathy. It could be tumors. It could be, it could be trauma. It could be anything, right? Um, so all these kind of defects um, somehow give us some topographic information, but not necessarily uh, causation or what's the reason why um, you have a defect. Once you have uh, a topographic information, somehow then you can have you can tune in, right? You, you can decrease the that list, um, but it still is it, it keeps large. So these are the classic defect. But uh, if we use the example that Dr. Vanella used, and you look at that one eye that is almost a beautiful hemianopia, and the only one, the other eye only on have like a very superior. You might miss that if you if what you have in your head is this kind of diagram. So I would um, hopefully and, and, and thankfully, 
um, running an MRI these days are not that difficult. And, and we can always uh, have that. But, um, but this kind of, what I'm trying to say is that these kind of diagrams might mislead um, the attention if we try just to look at it as the potential uh, or possible visual field defects. Now, if we continue, uh, so the first one, like Dr. Finella said uh, very well, most of the uh, defects of the optic nerve are unilateral. Um, it could be, of course, bilateral, but most of the time are unilateral. And um, but one thing to also keep in mind, especially if you're doing a 24-2, is that you might see a defect unilaterally on the 24-2, but uh, you don't see it on the other eye, not because it doesn't exist, it's because it's still very peripheral. Um, and, and I'm sorry that I'm, I'm, I'm okay. using the exception, but I think it's probably more important and actually uh, repeat, right, what we are looking here. Now, Finella, what do you think about that? Well, I, again, I, I go to, from my simple mind, I look at, is this a unilateral visual field defect? I know it's in the optic nerve or in the globe. As soon as we start getting into bitemporal or binasal, we're at the chiasm, and everything on one side in both eyes is retrochiasmal. Then you get into the detail and the devil is always in the detail and there are always exceptions to every rule. And that the, the one that you just said is very important because if we think about it, as we're looking straight ahead with one eye open, we have a much wider visual field off temporally than we do nasally. So we may have a temporal defect that's visible in one side that's just not represented in the other eye because there's just not enough room to to get that visual field. So again, we have to be open-minded that we're not always looking at glaucoma, we're not always looking at optic neuritis, but these visual field tests are one tool and a very important tool in our toolbox to help hone in on exactly what the problem is. And Hickam's dictum, patients can bring as many well diseases as they well please to the table. So there's patients who have glaucoma who have pituitary adenomas. There's patients who have ischemic optic neuropathy at age 50 and then develop a hemianopic visual field defects uh, in their 70s because of a stroke in the retrochiasm. So there's a lot of overlap when you start bringing in multiple disease processes to visual fields. But visual fields are incredibly important. The problem that we've all faced with for years is that Patients hate taking visual fields, and doctors, for the most part, hate torturing patients with visual fields, especially in something chronic like glaucoma, where we're seeing this patient two, three times a year, and we're, we're almost feel like we're beating them up with the visual field. And, and virtual fields have just been a game changer in that because patients... Alberto, as you said, you're bringing the fun back to this. If there ever was fun, I don't know if there ever was fun in a visual field test, but there certainly is fun 
now, and, and I'm just coming from clinic earlier today, and I had a patient with his first visual field uh, on the, on the a virtual reality headset, your, your unit, and I asked him, how was it? And he said, I love it. Uh, that was actually enjoyable. And I haven't heard patients use the term enjoyable when they're talking about visual fields ever. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, no. it's a different ball game now, no question. No. No, that's, that's why uh, the VR is so amazing. Now, at, at what point uh, are you going to do imaging when you're looking at this map of these visual, visual field defects? And what kind of imaging are we doing? Uh, Dr. <laughs> that's a very good uh, question. Uh, there's different um, approach, of course, depending on the defect that you are looking at. Um, one, um, a few principles, right? Remember, most of the visual pathway is packed. All the accents are very packed in the optic nerve, in the, in the chiasm, and the tract, laryngeal nucleus. Till there, everything is packed. So when you have a defect, until there, until the LG end, most of the time, um, it is a large defect. Of course, it, it starts, but it's a large defect that affected either um, the entire eye or the entire hemi uh, field. Once the accents then start spreading out, right? And, and go to parietal and, and temporal lobes, then uh, the probability to have a complete defect, let's say in a hemifield, it's, it's lower because now the defect has to be large or the cause have to be large, either stroke, trauma, or uh, um, tumors, right? So that also a kind of principle that we should keep. Uh, and, and when you go down to the last defect, remember that when that pathway start getting confluent again into the occipital lobe, uh, which is the primary visual pathway, but we have different, as I remember, there were five uh, visual uh, centers in the brain, but the primary is on the court, on the occipital lobe. And also remember that the distributions of that, of the retina in the cortex has a very well-defined uh, distribution, which means that uh, peripheral areas of the retina are more deep in the brain, while the macular area is more superficial, right? in the um in the cortex and and that's why we need to take this into account once you're getting into those lower defects like for example when you have only a macular hemianopia or if you have a hemianopia with macular spare those gives you some kind of like a idea of what you are but i think on this time in 2022 um, I think the most important, it's, 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 especially for us, right? It's, it's fun getting into, oh, the problem is here and here and here, right? But in these times, um, 
imaging, the imaging technologies are so available. I think the visual field um, function, it's more like a, the detection of the problem and then referring the patient to the right uh, specialist. If you have a visual field defect, number one advice is repeat it. Do not run. Repeat the visual field. Because remember, the visual field, it's still a psychophysical test. And uh, it might have some variation. And what it looks so obvious in one, it might goes away in the second one. So repeat it, the visual field. That's number one. It's only going to take a few seconds or so few minutes more, but are worth it. If you repeat the visual field and the defects remains, then you don't want to play with that patient. You, if if you, you have, of course, you're entitled to do whatever you want, but because you don't know exactly what it is, you always have to think about the worst. And the worst can kill the patient in a few minutes later. So you have to refer the patient to the emergency room as soon as you can. And if there's no tangents to the life, that's okay, perfect. <clears throat> now we have time, right? To go and look into more details on what it is, what the problem is, et cetera. But the number one step should be, is the patient's life in danger? That's number one. Because we know some of this, uh, you know, etiologies can really affect a patient's life. So that's number one. So you want to indicate an MRI, you want to indicate an OCT, because now we, what we thought it was very uncommon, which is the transsynaptic degeneration now, with the advent of the OCT, we know that it's more frequent than we thought, and is now unlikely to see strokes post-laryngeally uh, nucleus uh, strokes with uh, uh, ganglion cell defects. It's not. It's not uncommon. So that an OCT should be another imaging tested that should be used in addition to the MRI. And then if the MRI doesn't come up with anything, then you can try the uh, CT scan, right? Or, or you can, some, some, depending on the protocol, some hospital used to do CT scan first. But most of the time, unless you have a solid tumor or, or tumors of solid tissues like bones, um, the MRI would always be better. So Dr. Gonzalez, tell us what the MRI tells us differently than a CT scan. In, in general, the main difference is that the MRI is better for soft tissues imaging and the CT scan, it's better for um, uh, like a solid hard tissues like bones. Um, that's the main difference. And if we go more in detail, uh, the CT scan is an X-ray with different protocol, but it's an X-ray study, right? That's why bones are better uh, draw in the image. 
Well, the MRI basically is looking at what change when you shift the um, magnetic field, right, in that, in that patient. And then you use different techniques, right? Um, depending if it is a functional MRI or if it is a just regular, whether you put some um, dye or not. So there's different, different techniques. But the main differences are those. The MRIs is mostly uses for soft tissue, which is most of the time what you're looking for. Uh, there are tumors that are better to see in CT scan, for example, meningiomas. Meningiomas are, like, of course, coming from the meninges. Meninges are close to the uh, to the bones. Sometimes the CT scan it's it's helpful or provide additional insight um, of the tumor. But MRI probably is going to be the ones you're going to use the most. Uh, Dr. Can, I, can I just interject one one thought there? And, and Dr. Gonzalez, you're, you're spot on with that. But one of the challenges that we face clinically, if we're seeing a patient with, for example, a neuroophthalmic problem, and we want to get a good look at the soft tissue, an MRI is certainly going to give us a better view than CT imaging, but if we're sending these patients urgently to the emergency department, we need to communicate with the physicians there because in most emergency rooms, patients that are coming in urgently with vision loss uh, or neuro, neurologic complaints, oftentimes we'll get a CT scan, not because it's quicker and it's cheaper and it's, it's more readily available, but because they're concerned about a cerebral hemorrhage. And three things that CT scans show exceedingly well, bone, air, so sinus disease, and fresh hemorrhages. So if we're worried about or concerned about soft tissue, and we don't articulate that necessarily to the emergency room folks, there's a good likelihood that they're gonna get a CT scan, which is gonna show lack of a cerebral hemorrhage, hopefully, but it's not gonna tell us what the problem is or focuses is, and then they're going to have to get scheduled again for the MRI scan. So that happens quite regularly, and it's just an issue of they're concerned about cerebral bleeds, intra intracranial bleeds. Dr. Fidelli, that's a great point. Now, if you look at this chart, is there anything on that chart that you may want to point out that maybe you didn't point out from before uh, to the audience? Well, I, I, no, because um, it, we can get lost in the details here. And again, if we just look at unilateral defects versus bitemporal binasal defects or homonymous defects, we kind of have an idea at least as to where geographically and anatomically the problem is. What specifically the problem is, is going to vary depending upon patient demographics, their age, whether there's been any trauma, what other types of neurologic symptoms they may or may not have. So we, we, we can spend six hours talking about neuroophthalmic visual field defects and just get completely lost in that. It's a fascinating topic and we need to know those things, but it, 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 we can just, we, we lose the forest for the trees sometimes. But well, we have to know the trees that are in the forest. Uh, before we move on, Dr. Gonzalez, is there anything you want to add 
to the visual field discussion? Uh, I, I think those general principles, which is what I, I've been trying to focus first, uh, I think it, for me is one of the most important because like Dr. Finella said, uh, sometimes we get lost on the detail and we forget those major principles. The principle is the visual field is a subjective test. And in consequence, you will like whenever you feel something is wrong, repeat it because there's always time to, to, you know, to make a mistake. So just repeat it and make sure that you are confirming what you previously said. And, that, and as you both pointed out, the visual field could be, could mean life or death. So it's a very important test and it's important that people get screened when they, when they get their eyes examined for a visual field. And I think that's one of the shortcomings when, you know, online refractions, people aren't getting a full scope care. Uh, Dr. Finelli, if you could comment on that. Uh, you know, I have a, I think that, you know, the, the entire COVID thing has brought us to the realization that there is a place, but not a uniform place for virtual visits, um, especially when it comes to eyes. If it's an external problem, invariably it's a red eye. So a patient's going to take a picture of their red eye and send it to the doctor. Well, that narrows it down to about 50 different possibilities. And you really need to see the patient to determine what the basis is of the red eye. But as soon as you start getting into fundus viewing, um, yes, you can have an OCT run a remote OCT test and you can you can screen that to your, you know, your computer screen. But Maybe I'm old school, but I think that we need the ability to be able to look in the eye at the optic nerve, to see depth, to see contours, to see elevation, to see thickness that you're not going to be able to get looking at a two-dimensional screen. So I think there's a time and a place for screening visits, but as far as you know, being able to provide um, in-depth, full evaluations of patients, especially those with vision loss problems, that they're going to have to be seen face-to-face. -face. You know, you take a picture, a picture's only good as the resolution. And the eye is very complex. There's a lot of parts to the eye, from starting from the, from the lids to the tear film, back to the optic nerve, Dr. Gonzalez. Absolutely. The All Eyes Visual Hall VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. 
MacuHealth with Micromicel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicel technology. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit OIEbroadcasting.com and sign up today. Each generation was supposed to be healthier than the last one. Lifespan was supposed to be increasing. We were supposed to be in this paradise by now. Instead of getting healthier and healthier, it seems to have gone the opposite way. Millennials were projected to be the first generation in history to not outlive the generation before them. We are certainly headed for disaster. I think a lot of people are beginning to question the whole story. We live in a time where the paradigms are shifting. And the optometrist, in my opinion, is one of the best kept secrets. The public doesn't realize about going to the eye doctor. So many different diseases actually manifest in the eye. The back of the eye is the only place in the body that you could actually see the blood vessels. Completely non-invasively, you can screen thousands of people, not just for their eye health, but for their whole body health. Because this disease is here, it's also gonna be here. And I can look into the back of my eyeball and there are expert doctors on the ground who are looking at my eyeball while I'm doing it. The eye is the canary of the mind. The eye is the kingdom. Will everyone please Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.